Isaiah 54 this evening. We've been in Isaiah 53 the last two weeks. And in some respects, Isaiah 53 seems like it's the, the high point, the pinnacle, the, the, the peak of Isaiah. And in some respects, of course, it is. Isaiah 53 describes the cross in all of its horrific beauty. But I think it's telling that God keeps going. The story keeps going. Isaiah keeps prophesying beyond the cross. There's 13 more chapters. And I think it's revealing as highly as we esteem the cross and for all the reasons that we esteem the cross and Jesus who gave himself on the cross, I think it's revealing that the cross, Christ crucified, gets less than a chapter in all of Isaiah's 66 books. Horrific as it was, everything that it was, all that it was, even in chapter 53, it's not the whole chapter, right? In fact, the, 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 the servant's song, we say Isaiah 53 really begins three verses back in 52 because of an unfortunate chapter break. That last servant's song begins after the cross. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, we read last week and the week before. Isaiah 52, 13, he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And we said exalted speaks of his resurrection. Extolled speaks of his ascension. Very high speaks of his present ministry of intercession, all of which starts after the cross. It's, it's flashback when, when, when Isaiah, the Holy Spirit speaking through Isaiah, turns back to the cross. Why? It's as if, God the Holy Spirit wants us to know, wants to underline, wants to emphasize for us the cross was not the end of the story. And so there's the whole rest of the book, right? We get the fact of the cross here in Isaiah 53, but then God goes on to talk about the meaning of the cross and the fruit of the cross and the salvation of the cross and who's included who gets to come to the cross, the benefits of the cross. I remember hearing, sorry, by the way, no outline tonight, um, life and ministry and, and all of the things, and I apologize. And, and ironically, tonight, it would have been really helpful. I'll, I'll try to send one after the fact. I know that some of you are, are hanging on to them and you're using them to go back and and, and revisit some of these verses. So I'll try to do one and, and email it out through, through Simple Church. I just wasn't, didn't, didn't come together. But I remember, I remember hearing a teacher early in, in my Christian walk, when I was still getting to know my Bible, I remember hearing a Bible teacher ask, what was God's greatest miracle? And I can't remember exactly how he asked the question, but he asked the question in a way that sort of baited the hook. What was God's greatest miracle? Someone took the bait and said, well, creation. I mean, the universe stretched forth like a curtain and the galaxies and the, and the planets and the stars and the everything, and it's so vast and it's so great. And, and, and I mean, and it, without question, it's 
Well, it's something, right? But the teacher went on to ask, so how much of the Bible is devoted to the story of creation? And when you think about it, it's not all that much. A couple chapters in Genesis, a little bit in Job, a bit here and there in the prophets, maybe. Psalm or two. How much of the Bible is devoted to salvation? Whole book. <laughs> the whole thing is one redemption story. 66 books, 40 authors, one story. A love story. Similar math. How much of Scripture is devoted to the crucifixion? Chapter or so in each gospel. A few verses in the epistles here and there. A little bit of revelation. Some psalms, certainly. Psalm 22 and others. Chapter in Isaiah. How much of this book is devoted to what the crucifixion purchased? Many psalms. Much of the prophets. A big chunk of revelation. A lot of the Gospels. We get a sense of the proportionality there. I think it's also interesting to look at the emotion associated with each of those miracles in Scripture. What emotion do we see associated with creation? Satisfaction. I'm not trying to rhyme, it's just happening. <laughs> Contentment. What does God say at, at, at the end of, of creation? Huh, it's good. And then he rested. What, is, what emotion is associated with the cross? Well, we go to Hebrews 12 too. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And then we go places like Zephaniah chapter 3, my, one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. And that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Zephaniah 3.16, Do not fear Zion, do not let your hands be weak. The Lord your God in your midst, the Mighty One, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He'll quiet you with His love. He'll rejoice over you with singing. We see satisfaction and contentment with creation. We see joy, rejoicing, jubilation with the cross, with the salvation purchased at the cross. And it reminds us Going to Zephaniah, do not fear Zion. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem. It reminds us when we read about the cross and when we read about the joy that God had and has and eternally will have because of the cross, at least some of his focus, at least some of that joy is devoted to the salvation, not of the church, we think it's all about us, but it's not. <laughs> a lot of God's joy is directed toward the salvation of Jerusalem. If we lose that, if we lose sight of that, then we lose a lot of the beauty and a lot of the grandeur of that part of the love story Isaiah is trying to impart to us. Because it's not a love story where God said, I love you and you left me and you hurt me, and now I've turned my affection to another. No, it's a love story that says I loved you, and you rejected me, 
and I came after you. So anyway, with, with all of that as preview, and again with apologies for the lack of an outline, let's dive in. I, Isaiah 54, sing. See, there it is again. Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than are the children of the married woman, says the Lord. The Lord's rejoicing over Israel and is is beckoning and is inviting Israel to rejoice with him. Let's sing, God says. Sing, sing louder, sing as loud as you can, he says, verse 1. Why? Because the past is past. That's what God's announcing. The past is past. The future has begun. It began for us 2,000 years ago, you and I Gentiles, and began for us personally when we repented and confessed. But one day, one day yet future, one day at the, tri- at the end of the tribulation, it'll begin for Israel. And, and when it does, God will say, it's your turn to rejoice. It's our turn to rejoice together. Step into your future Embrace your salvation. You were desolate, says God. You were producing illegitimate children. I wasn't their father. You had more illegitimate children than than you ever had legitimate children in the past. But that's in the past. Verse 2, enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. I'm going to give you so many children, God says, even when you fully possess the land that I gave your father Abraham, because Israel never has, right? Israel has never fully occupied the real estate that God specified to Abraham belonged to Israel. Even when you occupy the fullness of your inheritance, it still won't be enough for all the kids I'm going to give you. Verse 3, and you shall expand to the right and to the left. Your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. In the millennial kingdom, Israel is going to expand its borders. It's going to rebuild the cities. It's going to rule over nations. The picture, one word, restoration. Restoration of the nation. Restoration of relationship between God and Israel. Verse 4, do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Not ever again is the implication. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame ever again. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and you will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. Remember when we were in the beginning of Romans 5. We spent a Sunday talking about shame. We reminded ourselves guilt is the fact of our sin. Shame is how we feel about guilt. We sometimes talk about feeling guilty. What what we mean when we say that is shame. And what did we say in Romans 5? God tells us that Jesus died to remove our guilt and shame. What's true for us will be true for Israel. Jesus died to remove their reproach, their guilt, And God is telling them, and you don't have to feel bad about it either. Imagine. Jesus came for you. He was your Messiah, sent to you first. 
fulfilling dozens of prophecies. You had no excuse for not recognizing them, and yet you rejected them. You handed them over to be crucified, and God said, yeah, but that's in the past. God is saying to Israel, I'm putting that in the sea of forgetfulness. I'm choosing to remember that, even that. No more. You should too. Things not remembered. Verse 5. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is your name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He's called the God of the whole earth. Israel, God says, will be reconciled with her husband, her kinsman redeemer in every sense of the word. The Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. God is going to take Israel back. Israel will once again be his wife. For a mere moment I've forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. For a moment I've forsaken you. For a moment. How long is a moment? Is is a moment the last 2,000 years since Israel rejected her Messiah? Or here is God referring to the moment, the seven years of tribulation, because the purpose of the tribulation is, again, to chasten Israel to repentance, part of the purpose. The other purpose is to judge the nations for their unbelief. But because we're talking about Israel here, we'll focus on that. Was that is the moment 2,000 years? Is it seven years? I don't think it matters. It could be either. It could be both. Either way, God says, hey, to me, a day is as a 1,000 years. And however long it was, whether seven or 2,000, it's going to be minuscule. It's going to be infinitesimally small compared to the eternity that we get to look forward together. An eternity of blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. Why is this happening again? It gets a little confusing, right? It's a challenge for us. A, because we read the Bible through Gentile eyes. We can't help it. We, we are Gentiles. We, we read the Bible from the perspective of being the church. And there are also those in the church that have insisted and trying to convince us that God is done with Israel and that there's no future for Israel and everything that we just read must refer to something else. It's so important that we see Israel and we see nothing but Israel when God says Israel. And it's so important that we understand the context of God's love for Israel. Because it's only when we do that we understand the the prophets. It's only when we do that we understand Revelation. It's only when we do that we understand the chapters that we're in of Romans. And it's only when we do that we understand our salvation and the God of our salvation. So I want to circle back and I want to talk about this this marriage idea between God, Yahweh, and Israel. We did it once before, did it kind of quickly. I'm not convinced that did it particularly well. So I want to take one more pass at it tonight, maybe a little bit more slowly. Rewind with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5. You can keep a finger in Isaiah. We'll come back, I think, sooner or later. (laughs) Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy, Deutero 2, 2nd. 
we think of Deuteronomy as the second giving of the law. Moses repeating, kind of consolidating everything that he's already said. And, And there's some truth to that. There's a lot of truth to that. But Deuteronomy is something else as well. And if we don't call this out, if we don't appreciate this and we miss this, then we miss a lot that comes after it. Deuteronomy is a marriage contract. Chapter 5, I don't know if I said that. I might have just said Deuteronomy. Flip to Deuteronomy 5. Did I say that? Are you there? Okay. Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you might learn them and be careful to observe them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, those who are here today, all of us who are alive. This is a marriage contract. It's the beginning of a marriage covenant. The priests saw it that way. The prophets saw it that way. More importantly, turn to Deuteronomy 6, God saw it that way. Deuteronomy 6, verse 10 So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you didn't build, houses uh, full of good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you've eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him, and shall take oaths in his name. You shall not go after other gods that gods of the peoples who are all around you, for the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth, and so on. God warning as part of this covenant, don't cheat on me. That's part of every marriage vow of every wedding that I've ever been to. A promise, you know, different words and, and, and so forth, but there's always some promise of fidelity, Will you love, honor, and cherish this person and only this person as long as you both shall live? God in Deuteronomy 6 is saying, don't run around me with other gods. Don't go out with idols. I'm a jealous husband. Go forward another chapter. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Beginning in verse 6, you're a holy people unto the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than other people because you were small, you were the least of all people. But because the Lord loves you, he loves you because he loves you. And because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh and of Egypt. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he's God. The faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, the judgments, which I command you today to observe them. God is saying, I love you. I don't have to. I didn't. Nothing compelled me to. I decided to. You weren't the biggest. You weren't the best. I chose you. And Israel reciprocates, right? We know the story. Israel says, yes, and we're choosing you. God pledged his faithfulness for a thousand generations. Israel said, yeah, us too. They covenanted. 
And in God's eyes, and we're, and we're used to seeing that, right? Okay, yeah, before Moses and the, this promise and that promise. But in God's eyes, this was more than just a contract. This was a marriage contract. Flip over to Ezekiel 16. You're saying, oh, yeah, we did do this once before. Yeah, kind of. Kind of, sort of. We said earlier the priests and the prophets saw the covenant of Deuteronomy that way, as a marriage. You can actually track down a lot of examples to substantiate that. Just one tonight, for the sake of time. Ezekiel 16, verse 8. When I passed you... When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. That's a wedding. Even more specifically, that's a wedding night. So Deuteronomy is a marriage contract. Israel became the wife of Jehovah, Yahweh, Israel, subsequently, was unfaithful. God was not. God was faithful. He can't be anything else. He's God. Faithful is what he is. But keep a finger in Ezekiel and go back a couple books to Jeremiah. Keep a finger in Ezekiel. Go Jeremiah 31. It's paper cut night here at Calvary Chapel. This is where you're saying to yourself, God, I'll put the tabs in my Bible. God, I'll put the tabs in my Bible. I went with post-it notes. Jeremiah 31, verse 32. I think. Yeah. Um... Behold, the days are coming, verse 31, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. God was faithful, Israel not so much. God was a faithful husband, Israel was an adulterous wife. Keep a finger in Jeremiah. Go back to where we were in Ezekiel. And we're going to go down just a little bit below where we were. Ezekiel 16, 15. God speaking to Israel. You trusted in your own beauty. Played the harlot because of your fame and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. You prostituted yourself, God says. But not like most prostitutes... Verse 16, you took some of your garments and adorned multicolored high places for yourself and played the harlot on them. Such things should not happen, nor be. You've also, listen to this, taken your beautiful jewelry from my gold and my silver, which I'd given you, and made for yourself male images and played the harlot with them. You took your embroidered garments and covered them, and you set my oil and my incense before them. Also my flour, which I gave you, the pastry of fine flour, oil, and honey, which I fed you, you set it before them as sweet incense. And so it was, says the Lord God. Verse 15, he said, you prostituted yourself. 
verses 16 through 19, he said, most prostitutes get paid. You paid your lovers, and you paid them with blessings, with gift giftings that you received from me. Even worse than that, verse 20, Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter that you've slain my children and offered them up by causing them to pass through the fire? And in all of your abominations and acts of harlotry, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, struggling in your blood. God is saying, not only did you offer the silver and the gold and and the oil and the flour and all of the other things with which I blessed you, you even indulged in human sacrifice before these false gods. You offered up my children. Verse 23, then it was so, after all of your wickedness, woe, woe to you, says the Lord God, that you also built for yourself a shrine and made a high place for yourself in every street. You built your high places at the head of every road and made your beauty to be abhorred. You offered yourself to everyone who passed by and multiplied your acts of harlotry. You also committed harlotry with the Egyptians, your very fleshly neighbors, and increased your acts of harlotry to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you, diminished your allotment, and gave you up to the will of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines, who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. There's lewd, there's really lewd, and even the Philistines are think it's too lewd. You also played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were insatiable. Indeed, you played the harlot with them and were still not satisfied. Moreover, you multiplied your acts of harlotry as far as the land of the traitor Chaldea, and even then you weren't satisfied. How degenerate is your heart, says the Lord God, seeing that you do all of these things, the deeds of a brazen harlot. What, what, what makes it especially tragic is that you took as lovers the nations that surrounded you, the nations that persecuted you, the nations that abused you, the nations that hate Israel were the very nations that you borrowed the false gods that you worshipped from. And other, other prophets say the same thing. It would, it would take many evenings to, to correlate and corroborate all of the other prophets saying similar things. Hosea especially, the whole book of Hosea is, is given over to this. Jeremiah is, is one that's worth turning to. Flip back to Jeremiah, if you would, and go to chapter 3. We get the picture, okay? God is faithful, Israel not so much. Israel is an unfaithful wife refusing to repent. What does God do? Jeremiah chapter 3, he divorces her. Jeremiah 3, beginning in verse 6, you're still turning pages. For some of us from some church backgrounds, this is a very hard truth to process. God divorces. I thought God hate divorce. I'm sorry, I thought that God hated divorce. He did, he does. God hates divorce because marriage is, 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 is intended to convey the relationship between Jesus and the church and, and so on. It's supposed to be a picture of faithfulness, a picture, picture of love and respect. God hates divorce. There are things that God hates more than divorce. Jeremiah 3, verse 6, The Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done. She's gone up on every high mountain and out under every green tree and there played the harlot. And I said, after she'd done all the things, return to me, but she didn't return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. 
Then I saw for all the causes which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. So it came to pass through her casual harlotry that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And yet for all of this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her own heart, but in pretense. Did God divorce Judah? I don't know. If you had asked me six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, I would have had an answer, and I would have been very confident in the answer. I'm less sure now than I used to be. We just read in Black Letter Scripture that God divorces Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. But we read in Isaiah 50, verse 1, God, God debating, he said, I've divorced you. He says to Judah, where's your certificate of divorce? Was there ever one or was it not yet at that point? I'm still working on that. You might have some insight around that. We return to the subject in Isaiah 62. I'm hoping to be more confident of an answer, of an answer before then. But, but I, don't, I don't think we need to pin that down. I think we can hold that in an open hand. We know at least that God divorced the ten northern tribes. And we know that Judah committed all of the same sin, didn't learn from her sister's example. But what does God say? Verse 11, the Lord said to me, Backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words to the north. Return backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I'm merciful I will not remain angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you've transgressed against the Lord and have scattered your charms. Return, he says, verse 14, for I'm married to you. So even in divorcing Israel, we can leave the question of Judah open because even in divorcing Israel, because that's what we know for sure happened, God is leaving the possibility of reconciliation open. Back in Deuteronomy, we read about the various punishments God promises will come against an unfaithful wife. Back to Ezekiel 16. Keep a finger in Jeremiah. It's that kind of night. Back in Ezekiel 16, verse 35, we read the fulfillment of of some of those promises, some of those promises coming to fruition. Now then, O harlot, Ezekiel 16, 35, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your filthiness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered and your harlotry with your lovers and with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children which you gave to them, surely therefore I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I'll gather them from all around you and will uncover your nakedness to them that they might see all your nakedness. And I'll judge you as woman, women who break wedlock or shed blood or judge. I'll bring blood upon you in fury and jealousy. I'll give you into your hand and they shall throw down your shrines and break down your high places and strip off your clothes, take your beautiful jewelry, leave you naked and bare. They shall bring up an assembly against you and they shall stone you with stones and thrust you through with their swords. They shall burn your houses with fire and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women and I'll make you cease playing the harlot and you shall no longer hire lovers. Catch the irony here. God is saying the nations from whom you borrowed gods to worship 
The nations whose gods you took as lovers will be the nations I use to judge you. Verse 42, so I will lay to rest, underline this, I will lay to rest my fury toward you, and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be quiet and be angry no more. Eventually, God says, my my jealousy, my judgment, your punishment will cease. It's not going to be unending. It's not going to be eternal. It's going to have a beginning, and it's going to have an end. Verse 43, Because you did not remember the days of your youth, but agitated me with all of these things, surely I will also recompense your deeds on your own head, says the Lord God. And you shall not commit lewdness in addition to all your abominations. He's saying, I'm not chastising you to destroy you. I'm chastising you to correct you. Now, is this short-term or long-term? When we read prophecy in in Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and so forth, we have to ask ourselves, is this this a prophecy that has a near-term fulfillment or a long-term fulfillment? Both... And it has to be both. It has, there has to be a long-term horizon to this. Why? Because Israel today, Israel tonight, Israel right now is still being punished, right? Still being called to repentance. Keep a finger in Ezekiel, Jeremiah chapter 3. Israel right now is surrounded by enemies. Israel has one ally in the world, that's us, and we're pretty flaky. Israel right now is is being sanctioned, is being threatened. Israel is still being punished. The judgments that God enumerates in Deuteronomy, the judgments that we just read in Ezekiel, are still playing themselves out, and they haven't even peaked yet. Because we know they peak during the tribulation. Jeremiah chapter 3, the judgment is still going on, the chastisement is still going on, but God calling Israel to repentance is also still going on. Uh, Verse 11, the Lord said to me, backsliding Israel has, I already read this, (laughs) Um, return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, verse 14, I'm married to you. I'll take you one from a city and two from a family, and I'll bring you to Zion. And I'll give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. It'll come to pass when you're multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that there'll be no more. The ark of the covenant shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made anymore. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of God, and all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. In those days, the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel, and they shall come together out of the land of the north, to the land that I've given as an inheritance to your fathers, and so on. That hasn't happened yet. No human eye has seen that. Those prophecies have not been fulfilled But the way that God is talking, it sure seems like he thinks they will be. And if we fast forward to Jeremiah 31, in fact, God promises that it will be. Behold, the days are coming. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers and that day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the hand of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. 
Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. And God is talking about Israel. New covenant. No, we, we read about the new covenant when we celebrate communion. This is the new covenant of my blood, Jesus said. Yes, because we're grafted in. But the new covenant, before it's anything else, is a new marriage covenant between God and Israel. A new marriage contract, because the old one was shattered. Israel broke it. But with the new covenant in place, accepted by both parties, comes restoration and blessing. Once more to Ezekiel. And let's go to the end. Ezekiel 16, verse 60. I'll remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you'll remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your older and younger sisters, for I'll give them to you for daughters, but not because of my covenant with you. And I'll establish my covenant with you. Then you shall know that I'm the Lord, that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame when I provide you an atonement for all that you've done, says the Lord. It's convoluted language, but it's the reciprocal of of what we read earlier. They'll remember their shame and then be done with it. They'll remember their shame and be over it. They'll remember their shame and put it down because they've been restored to their husband, their maker, God our Father. Which brings us back as we wrap up tonight to Isaiah 54. Just like Isaiah 53, it begins with good news. First three verses, you're going to have legitimate children. You've been having illegitimate children. You've had more illegitimate children than you had legitimate children during the first marriage. But that's about to change. Why? Because the marriage is going to be restored. Verse 4, your unfaithfulness, done, forgotten. We're not going to talk about it anymore. Verse 5, I'm going to be your husband, and you're going to let me. Verse 6, I'm going to love you and I'm going to be generous to you the way that I always wanted to be, the way that I was in your youth. Verse 7 and 8, the sin and the fruit of your sin are going to be replaced by blessing after blessing after blessing. Verse 9, for this is like the waters of Noah to me, for I've sworn that the waters of Noah would no more cover the earth, so I've sworn that I will not be angry with you nor rebuke you. For the mountain shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. God is invoking his covenant with Noah. What was his covenant with Noah? He's never going to destroy the world with water again forever and ever, never. He says, my new covenant with Israel is going to be like that. I'm promising to never pour out my wrath on you again. I'm going to pour out grace upon grace upon you forever. Our remarriage will be unbreakable. It will be eternal. It will be always. It will not. It will not end in divorce, no matter what you do. Why? 
the same reason that our marriage to our bridegroom is eternal. Because every sin we'll ever commit against him, he's already forgiven. He's already atoned for with his blood. Our marriage will never end, God says to Israel. We will not reach the end of the chapter tonight, Patrick says to the church. Next week, we get a glimpse of some of those blessings, the blessing upon blessings that God promises Israel. Um, We get a glimpse of the millennial kingdom. And I think we're going to do a little bit like we did tonight. We'll go big picture and put the millennial kingdom a bit in context. But the big picture, as we wrap up tonight, the big picture is always that God is more. The big picture is, is... God is bigger, not only than we imagine, but that we can imagine. And how diminished would God be if we read Israel out of this story? If we replace Israel with the church? If we say, oh, well, bride of Christ, wife of of Yahweh, same difference, same thing. No. No. Because that would be a love story that begins with promise and ends in tragedy. That would be a love story where God sets aside his first wife and turns his affection exclusively to another, and God is bigger than that. In our humanity and our pride and our vengefulness, we want to say, yeah, there's some sin that you can't that can't be forgiven. There's some things you can't come back for because that would justify us in our unforgiveness and our un- our hard-heartedness and our bitterness. But God is so much more. And and when we confuse or combine God's words to Israel with his words to the church, God's glory is diminished. What what gives God more glory? When, when, when you're uncertain how to read a Bible passage, questions to ask, where's the love? When I, when I don't know what to do about doctrine, my rule of thumb is follow the love. That's why I have a hard time with Calvinism. I don't have a hard time with predestination. I have a hard time with Calvinism that says that predestination is the only way that God loves. Because it puts God's love in a box. What gives God more glory? What what is greater love than God divorcing an unfaithful wife? An immediate what gives God more glory? Divorcing an unfaithful wife and turning his back on her forever? Or God divorcing that unfaithful wife and immediately setting about bringing her back, winning her back with his blood to be with her forever? God is always more. The next chapter, we're not remotely there yet, but Isaiah 55. My thoughts are not your thoughts, verse 8, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. If we can conceptualize it, if we can visualize it, it's too small to be God. If we can do it in our own strength, We have no way of knowing for sure whether it's us or God. Sunday. You know, the 
the thing that vexes me about everything going on in, in Asbury University. Those who say it can't be this. Those who say it has to be that. It can never be, it must be. It always is, it never is. Do you really want to speak in absolute terms about the God of the universe? Are we really comfortable putting limits around him? After, after Sunday's message, someone reminded me of Whitfield and the Wesleys. And, and, and time is away from us, but, but in, in, the, in the 1700s, we had the Wesleys and the, and the Whitfields preaching, preaching repentance, preaching salvation. Whitfield was a Calvinist. The, the Wesleys Arminian. And, and at different times in their respective ministries, they had deep frustration, deep-seated hard-heartedness toward one another. And, and yet the Wesleys eventually, after saying many harsh and unkind things about George Whitfield, invited him to speak because they saw the Lord was moving through his ministry. And they said, yeah, we, we don't know how to reconcile our theological differences, but we can see that God is moving in both camps, the Calvinist and the Arminian. And God have mercy on us if, 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 if we presume to think that God can't defy our, our expectations, our, our small theology. God is always more. And the glorious thing about, about reading about God and Israel and the kingdom and prophecy is that he demonstrates that. May we never diminish that. Do we understand it all perfectly? No. Can we comprehend a love like that? I can't. Do we read that it's true? We do. And we praise God for it. Father, thank you that you are more. Thank you that you are great and good and glorious. And how wonderful it is that you defy our expectations. Our hearts and mind can't contain, can't conceive of your goodness, your grace. But that, that cannot and should not and must not keep us from worshiping you. Indeed, it's the, it's the reason that we do. If you were a man like us, worship would be, would be so inappropriate. If you were only a man like us, worship would be misplaced at best, heretical at worst. But you are God. You are so much more, so much higher. And we praise you.